Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. If anyone wants to contact me, the email is jim at themaltedmuse.com or you can use the contact form on the website www.themaltedmuse.com where you can find more information and some links. Some people may have noticed a change in the artwork on the podcast. For some time now, I've been not that happy with the whiskey glass photograph that I've been using. It's a photograph I took and developed from film to show the legs on an Irish whiskey quite a few years ago now. And it's a photograph that I was pleased with. However, I don't think it relates well to the idea of a muse. And whilst I like a shot glass from time to time, it's not my chosen vessel for tasting from. Now the new artwork features a swan, which relates to two things. Firstly, it relates to the Irish tale of the children of Lear, to which my wife's family's name has got a direct link. And secondly, it's also an old Celtic symbol for the poet, so there's a bit of a link there with the idea of a muse. Underneath the swan, there's a trichetra, a three-cornered knot. Now I've drawn this three-cornered knot to represent the three main ingredients of whiskey, in effect forming a poet swimming on a sea of whiskey. Not so much a logo as a dream. Now in this episode I want to talk about peat, often found in whiskey but also often talked about as a singular aspect. You hear people say, it's a peaty whiskey, there's a taste of peat. But peat has its own complexity and variations, so I thought an episode about peat would be a good thing to do. However, before I do, I would like to say a couple of quick things. First, an update about the ado question. The question being, can it be whiskey if it's made from buckwheat? This is the French whiskey Adou Silver or Adou Gold. Now, I've had another email from the distillery stating their case that their understanding is that you can make grain spirit from buckwheat, which I think personally is a bit of a legal loophole. And anyway, as whiskey is a spirit made from grain, you can therefore make whiskey from buckwheat. They've even sent me some documentation to prove the legal position of this, some French certificates. Now, I haven't had chance yet to get these translated, and I don't speak French myself. But I still don't actually agree with the logic. Yes, whiskey is a spirit made from grain, but that does not mean that all grain spirit is whiskey. I do, however, really appreciate the time and effort that they're going to to explain their position to me. I am getting to like this product more and more, and I'm also really appreciating the integrity of the distillery. Now, I don't really doubt them at all, and I'm I'm warming to these people a lot. I just simply cannot understand how a pseudo-cereal can be used to make whiskey. But I'm getting some advice, and 
the, as soon as I know anything more about this, I'll get back to you about it. When it comes to a do, would I recommend a do? Yeah, I would. It's an enjoyable drink. It's full of character. It's actually really nice. And the more you have of it, the more you get to like it. I have no question about that. My only question is, should it be called whiskey? Now, another thing I want to mention is I've had some recent contact um, with Professor David Thompson of Annandale Distillery. And if you're there saying to yourself, Annandale Distillery? Where? What? You may be forgiven. The distillery is a lowland distillery that closed some time ago. In fact, it was first opened in 1830, but then fell silent in 1919. Now that's quite some time ago. But since 2007, things have been stirring up there. There are plans afoot this week. Malcolm Rennie, the distillery manager, Dr Jim Swan, a person who's been mentioned before on this podcast, and Richard Forsyth meet to finalise plans for the design of the plant. This, along with the involvement of Historic Scotland, would involve the restoration of the distillery and the formation of an academy, with production aimed at starting in the late end of 2012, maybe 2013, maybe even later than that. This is an exciting project and one I'm looking forward to seeing progress. When I get more information, I will pass that information on to you. My understanding is, in the long term, they're really looking to open up an academy, and it might not be just the normal type of academy. And I'm also thinking that they might actually be making both a smoky whiskey, which I believe is the, has been the tradition in Annandale Distillery, but also making a more contemporary non-smoky version as well. For now, let's get back to the main focus of this episode, which is peat. After which, I want to talk about a book that I've recently finished reading. I've been reviewing some of the episodes of the Malted Muse podcast lately. I've been looking at some of those really embarrassing early episodes and also some of the really embarrassing later episodes um, and looking at some of the areas that I've tried to cover there things like how to taste whiskey what is whiskey and some of my thoughts and views about it and I've also been looking at some of the whiskies that have been tasted and what we're saying about them and one of the words that keep coming up is this word peat um, often talk about how whiskey can be peaty, the peatiness of a whiskey, what's underneath the peat. Um, and it, it's peat's an unusual substance. Well, unusual in a strange way. It's not really unusual. In fact, it's a very common substance. Um, but in many ways, it's also a substance that we take for granted. We talk about peat, um, but I'm not too sure that we always understand it, or at least... Um, give it the credit that it's due. It's not at all uncommon for people to talk about peatiness or smokiness within a whiskey. Some 
geographical areas have actually become strongly associated with this peaty characteristic, such as Isla, even though the island actually does produce some unpeated whisky. And some areas are associated with not having peaty whiskies, such as Ireland, even though it produces some peaty whiskies, and would have actually produced even more whiskies with peaty flavours in the past. Peat influences whisky mainly through the drying process for the malt. Once barley is, is malted, that is germinated to the, to the desired amount, it's then dried so that the germination process is halted and it can then be ground into a grist. If you want a peaty whisky, then you burn peat and dry it using peat smoke. But this, however, is a simplistic view, for there are some alternatives. Not all distilleries dry the barley with peat smoke. Some allow the peat smoke to fumigate the wet barley, but not actually dry it, or at least not completely dry it, because once the, the barley has become dry, then the peat smoke no longer has any effect. It gets to that point where it just doesn't absorb any more. And so what a lot of, of distilleries or maltings will do, uh, will dry the peat off to the point where it's surface dry as opposed to completely dried through, thus enabling the maximum amount of peat smoke to get in to that barley. And you don't want to waste the peat smoke. Of course, some distilleries don't want to completely saturate as much as they can with the peat smoke anyway they want to have a gentle influence of peat smoke so for example um, I can think of a distillery at the moment that will have a coke fire to dry the barley but will also have a degree of peat going with that so that the peat smoke comes up through but in many ways it's diluted it's not such a strong influence and as I was saying, some will actually just surface dry the, the, the barley and then finish drying it using hot air. Some distilleries put great emphasis on using the husk of the grain, which is where a lot of the peaty smoke will be absorbed. In short, the way the barley is smoked or dried makes a difference as does the length of time, the intensity of heat and smoke. A good part of this depends on the peat itself, on its condition as much as anything else. Now when I used to burn peat fires in Ireland, I liked to use dry, hand-cut peat. The machine-cut peat, it lasted longer, it burned easier, but it wasn't the same. Even the ash colour was different. The hand-cut peat, it had looser fibres and a different feel to it. it that, that feel, it's not just within the texture, but the experience of using it. It wasn't a big machine that had gone through carving it up, spilling it out like a sausage, pounding it up, compressing it down to a shiny brick. 
It was something where you could see somebody put a spade through the soil. It had been done by hand. It had a different feel to it. The smell of it was rounder and fuller. And the look of it was far more pleasing to the eye than this shiny, soulless brick. But whether I was using the brick or the hand cut, it still had to be dry. I didn't want to use damp peat because damp peat's no good. And I'll tell you why damp peat's no good. A. It's not so easy to burn. And B. It just gave off too much smoke. The, the, the farmhouse where I was would get completely full of smoke. But then again, that's me burning it to warm a house. In that situation, I don't want smoke. I want heat. But in a distillery, that's different. In the mortings, that's different. They, it's the other way around. You don't want heat. You don't want to burn the barley. You want to caress it with the smoke. Allow that smoke to do its magic. So, what they are wanting there is they want that peat to be not too dry. They want a degree of moisture into it. And that will make a difference as to when the peat is cut because peat has to have time to dry out before it can be used as a fuel but if you're using it um, in a distillery not such a rush to actually get it dug out of the ground and the other thing is of course is the depth at which you're cutting the peat from a big machine can churn along it can get right to the bottom of the peat where the peat is um, a far darker color far more um, decomposed and compressed whereas a lot of the smoke will be coming from those looser fibers higher up in the peat bog the higher levels the less decomposed areas there was a time and in parts it is still the case that people would go out to their own bit of land or piece of land allocated to them and cut their own peat they push that spade into the ground, chuck up the peat and then arrange them in stacks to dry out. At one end of the area, cut out, there would be a cut into the peat, a small step, so that anything that fell in could find a way out. And by anything I mean animals, and maybe the little people. I once read of a man who was running low on peat for his fire so decided to give work a miss one day and spent the day on the hill digging the peat the next day he went to work and was confronted by a very suspicious boss the boss asked him why he had not been at work the day before he gave the answer that he'd been unwell are you sure you're unwell asked the boss oh yeah i'm sure i have problems with my stomach he replied the boss was still suspicious, so he asked again, Are you sure you had stomach problems? There was a pause, and then the man, not wanting to tell a lie, just looked at his boss and said, I must have had bad stomach problems, for I was chucking up pee all day long. Now there are those who say that peatiness can get into a whiskey in other ways, that being through the water, either water used in making the wash or sometimes in the water used to reduce the spirit to a bottling strength. 
The idea is that water that runs through a peat bog will pick up the flavours and the smells of the peat. Now I've got no doubt of that. Having seen rivers of vibrant brown colour coming from peat bogs. Some say, however, that by the time that the water is used and the distilling process has taken place, that the peat flavour has actually gone from that water. But I'm not too sure. Now the third way of getting peatiness into a whisky could be during the maturation process. Now if you fill a cask with the, with the most peaty spirit and then leave it for 10 years and then take out that spirit and fill it again with more peaty spirit and leave it again and then take that out and then fill it with some unpeated spirit then the cask wood must give up some of that peatiness which would be a way of giving that single grain whiskey just that little hint of peat to the flavour of it and of course peat can have a strong flavour and that's why a little bit of peaty whiskey in a blend can go a long way to enhancing and rounding out and putting depth and complexity into a blend. But peat is not just like a light switch. It's not a just a on or off experience. Peat is not even just like a dimmer switch with the ability to control the volume. You know that it's strong peat or weak peat. Peat is both of those things. Yes, it can be there. Yes, it can be absent. Yes, it can be strong. Yes, it can be weak. So you can adjust the volume of it. You can even move the light, which would be my my weak metaphor for saying you can use it in different ways, such as how long for and different degrees of humidity. But to take the metaphor stage further, you can actually use different colour bulbs. Now what is this a metaphor for? I do love a good metaphor, but even I know sometimes I push a metaphor too far. Let me explain this. It's, it's, it's quite a simple thing that I'm trying to say here. Just as there are different colours of light bulbs in the world, so there are different types of peat. And to understand that and its influence, we need to actually understand the answer to the question, what is peat? Well, in many ways, peat is to coal what Yorkshire puddings are to pancakes. The ingredients are the same, but it, it, the process is different. Just as coal is made from organic matter, so is peat. But with peat, the process of decomposition is suspended. Now this is due to acidic conditions and to a lack of oxygen, which prevent microorganisms from breaking down that organic matter. This brings up three important factors. What is actually preventing the decomposition? Well, the main reason for this is simply water. The overwet, boggy conditions, in fact, very wet conditions, will cause peat to form quicker than drier conditions. And this is to the, to the degree of being able to allow climatologists to 
study peat bogs and to use that to study how climate change has occurred over time. But it's not only the speed of decomposition that's relevant. The source of the wetness will also play a part. For example, there is a difference between wetness caused by prolonged rainfall in cool climates that reduce the level of evaporation and wetness caused by groundwater fed wetness with poor drainage and again from wetness that's caused by climatic factors such as permafrost or partial permafrost. Another factor is the type of organic material that is forming the peat. Now a common ingredient in peat is marshland moss. In fact, sphagnum moss is clearly recognisable on most peat bogs. Now, sphagnum moss is a lovely, soft, very much water-laden, small plant. There's a few hundred species of this of this stuff. It's around one to two centimeters high, um, with the main stem reaching five, ten seed centimeters. And it grows in very humid and wet areas, and it just loves the peat bog area. And when I say it can hold on to water, it can hold on to a vast amount of water. That can actually produce a a cyclic situation here because it can hold on to the water it holds the water in place causing the wetness that causes more of it to grow that causes it to hold on to the water more so it's a self-perpetual thing and of course peat bogs can recover but there, there is discrepancy about this. Some of this does depend on who you talk to. There will be people who are saying that peat bogs need to be conserved, we mustn't use peat. There's other people that will be saying, oh no, it, it recovers in time with the way that we're presently using um, peat, the, the amount that we're using. There's enough peat around to keep us going for another 5,000 years um, and there is no great threat. Now what's the reality of this? The reality of this I have to say I don't know. So that's sphagnum moss. But sphagnum moss isn't the only material by far. There's other ingredients in this, this lovely souffle of peat. And those, those other ingredients can include grass, fungus and other plant forms, even trees. And it includes the pollen, the insects, other wildlife, and occasionally even human remains. In fact, the fact that decomposition can be so delayed in these peat bogs means that corpses can become mummified within them, and as such have revealed some interesting archaeological finds. Now another factor is the location of the peat. And that also has a significant element to its character. And for what I think are obvious reasons. These are the differences between ancient inland peat bogs and those in coastal areas. Not just due to the presence of sea air. And this can be misleading. The seaweedy 
quality that can be found in, in certain Isla whiskies. One could think it's because the water in the peat bogs is, is salty, it's that sea water. But actually the peat bogs there were formed after the island detached itself from the sea. There isn't salty seawater that's going in there. The influence of the sea comes in another way, in the sea spray, in the air around it, but of course in the wildlife as well that comes to visit that area and leaves behind, or shall we say, their mark, their droppings, and occasionally their own bodies as well. Now how much of the world is covered in peat? Now I've read somewhere about 3% of the world's landmass is covered in peat, much of which is at high latitudes and accounts for about 60% of the world's wetlands. However, despite its spread around the globe, it should also be remembered that it is in great demand, used for fuel for domestic cooking and heating, as well as widely used within gardening, not to mention its most noble use in adding flavour to whisky. The peat bogs provide homes to many rare and specialised animals and organisms, whilst the burning of it, now that's an interesting thing, the burning of it, because of the lack of oxygen there, the, the fact that decomposition is delayed, the carbon within the organic matter is locked in until, of course, you burn it and then large amounts of CO2 can be released. And whilst peat bogs can regenerate, they only do so if the conditions are right for them to do so. If you go in there and you sport pour oil and everything all over it and kill off the, the natural growth that's happening there, it's not going to regenerate so well. So the conditions have got to be right. And even then, they do regenerate, but they do so slowly, at a rate of what can be just about one millimetre per year. The reality is that peat is relatively cheap. It doesn't need to be mined from deep down under the ground. It's just lying there on top of the ground. In fact, the, the peat that we really want for whiskey is the stuff that's on the top, the less decomposed. Peat, I don't think it's really taken off as a major industrial fuel. So when coal was expensive, and when trees were small or scarce, so that the wood itself was either absent or precious. The obvious choice, if you're going to burn something to keep your house warm, was peat. Especially at war times when coal was needed for other things. And this is one of the reasons why you can occasionally find an older whisky with a, a peaty profile, whilst the newer version actually doesn't have that peaty profile. Although there are examples where it can go the other way, such in Campbelltown, where there was a coal mine close by, where the coal um, was readily available, and basically when that ran out, they needed to find alternatives. With all this in mind, 
I hope you find some appreciation for this wonderful stuff. When you next have a peaty whiskey, try to get under the peat and find the other flavours. Yes, do that. Get underneath it. But also explore the peat. Because peat has got a variety of flavours. It's got a variety of aromas and textures. Which is one of the reasons there can be differences between one region and another. Or even neighbouring distilleries. How? Because if a distillery buys in the malt and it is pre-peated, the peat is from somewhere else. And different peat has different influences. Because even if the peat is sourced from the same place, then the smoking of the wet malt is different from the complete drying of the malt. And the amount of husk that goes through will also affect the peaty levels. But also the temperature at which the peat is burnt makes a difference. The peat smoke is different from normal wood smoke or any other form of smoke really. It tends to burn at lower temperatures. The more, it's more of a, a tendency to smoulder than it is necessarily a big flame. And that's one of the things that makes it good as a domestic fuel because it will smoulder away in the hearth over a prolonged period of time. But it's also a danger really when it comes to um, things like natural fires caused by such things as discarded cigarette butts or even lightning, things like that. And the risk that it has is because it smoulders and because a seam of peat can actually go underground. You can have this thing where there's a fire going on, you come, you pour water over it, you put the fire out, you leave it, and then you find that you haven't put the fire out, it's smouldering away, and it pops up again somewhere else as it's smouldered under the ground and then raises its head again. Peat fires can be very difficult to put out. Now, the other thing about this is because they're burning at this lower temperature, they can achieve this thing which is not complete combustion which is a fancy way of saying that it releases higher amounts of fine particle matter which is another way of saying it produces soot and smoke now this this soot this smoke includes things like carbon nitrogen and sulfur and hopefully the copper in the pot in the pot stills in the worm or the condensing tubes will actually reduce that contact with the copper will, will reduce some of those elements such as the sulfur but there's other things in there as well it's not all just carbon nitrogen and sulfur there's other particles in it there as well and the heat of the of the fire will help determine what particles are going up because the higher the temperature the less particles there are the less smoke the lower temperature the more particles the more smoke and one of the the types of particle that we're interested in um, in tasting whiskey I suppose would come under this this group called the phenols now it's just start with phenol itself it's a strange substance because if you said to a child 
what is phenol, they wouldn't know the answer to it. If you said to a child, what is sugar, they do know the answer to it. And we, we talk about things being sugary sweet. We all understand that, what sugar tastes like. It's one of those things in the world that has a taste that is itself, it's sugar. And in a way, phenol within whiskey has almost reached that stage. Because what does phenol taste like? Well, it's phenolic. And you will often hear people talking about phenolic noses or phenolic flavours. It, it's that strange description of, of a substance. Let's break it down a bit further. The phenol is the part that, yes, it's smoky, but it's the bit that's got that element of clove to it. It's a bit spicy. There, there's elements in there of apple, of nut, peanut. But it's not by itself. There's also got another one in there, cresol. Not to be confused with creosol, but cresol. Now what's that smell of? That's got that, and I'll be honest here, I love it, absolutely love it. It's that cold tar characteristic smell gorgeous it's that smell that makes you know that this is a substance that is used in antiseptics in disinfectants in wood preservatives and okay yeah in large quantities it's harmful it can fact actually be very harmful to the body but that's in large quantities and within a glass of whiskey you're not going to have large quantities of it Another one is xylenol. Now, xylenol, yet again, it's one of those in high levels not particularly good for you. Although it can cause euphoria. It can cause auditory hallucinations. But it's got this smell, a smell of smokiness. But it's smoked bacon. And it's got a taste not that dissimilar. It's stringent and it's also a bit on the musty side. Now mustiness can come into a whiskey from a variety of ways and this is one of them. And then on the other extreme we've got, and I'm sure I'm going to say this wrong, guayacol. It's antiseptic. It, it smells a bit off. It's smoky air. It's smoky in the flavor as well and it's it's woody but this is the part where you've also got vanilla that both the taste and the smell of vanilla and it's a strange little substance here it's also found not just from peat smoke you can find it in other places as with all of these things it's also found as a metabolic byproduct of bacteria. In fact, I've been reading a study of the presence of this in apple juice that has gone a bit off. And one of the other strange things about this is it's got these antipyretic qualities. I just love little ironies like this. We actually get it in the whiskey by starting a fire. We talk about whiskey having a good degree of burn and yet this substance in high quantities can have an antipyretic quality. That means it helps you bring a body temperature down. Getting the balance of what's 
between these these substances, like how much phenol, how much guaiacol, the balance between those two, a lot of that will depend on the temperature of the fire um, that the peat is burning at. Now, how sensitive are we to this? Well, it's measured in parts per million. How many parts per million do we have to have in that before we can actually taste it or smell it? Well, it's actually a staggering 0.1, a 0.1 parts per million. And our noses can actually pick it up. I find that staggering, absolutely staggering. The other thing I'd say about this is that all these substances, they're, they're organic. They've come out of the peat, and the peat is an organic substance. Okay? Now, once we've, we've dried that barley, we're going to grind it up. We're going to put some yeast in with it. We're going to do all these magical things to it to make it ferment. And then, when it's just at the right moment, it's going to go into the still, we're going to distill it once, we're going to distill it again, maybe even three times. If you're brook laddie, who knows, maybe even a fourth time. And it's going to pass through the copper, we're going to cool it all down, and then it's going to go into casks. And when it's in that cask, in its slumber, do you know what is that spirit brushing up against? Wood. Another organic substance. And that wood, that cask, has had something happen to it before the spirit's gone into it. It's been burnt. It's been charred. And when you actually stop and think about it, that's what we've done to the peat. We've got another organic substance that has had a heat treatment. And that's going to release some things in there. So some of these things that are coming out of the peat, just some of them, such as, for example, the vanilla, is also going to be there within the cask as well. So this is, this is one of the wonderful things about whiskey. This is why, or let's be honest, just one of the reasons why I'm here doing a podcast, I'm here enjoying a taste of whiskey, I'm here studying about it i'm here just loving the stuff and yet there's other people that's actually out there making the whiskey now these people these are the magicians because what these people are doing is just taking yeast grain and water and then working magic on it they're balancing all these influences, all these factors coming together to make this beautiful, beautiful drink. It's at a level that I can't do. And one of the key things that they can do, they don't all do it, but one of the things that they can do is utilizing the properties of this fantastic substance, peat, and the smoke that comes from it. Okay, so that is some of the things that are in the peat. And that's the level that we can we can detect it by. How do we actually measure how much peat's going in? Well, do you know that 
in short, comes down to science. There are ways of measuring it. it the, the funny thing is there's more than one way of measuring it. When we talk about measuring it, we're going to get into things like high-performance liquid chromatographic techniques and a whole range of other big words, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, and time-of-flight mass spectrometry. Oh, these lovely big phrases, these scientific terms, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand them. I actually don't feel the need to understand them. What I do know is that there's different me ways of measuring the peated levels within the barley, and that can be done both before distillation and after distillation. And after distillation, the level is going to drop. The actual act of fermentation and distillation will reduce the phenol quantity in the spirit. And then what is more, aging itself in the cask will bring the level down even further because these things are not only water soluble but they are also prone to oxidation so over time they will diminish so very very quickly in summary what have we got here we have got this lovely organic substance we have got very clever usage of it and we have got an influence of it onto the barley that then goes off into the whiskey it's a wonderful thing we can look at it we can study it we can do experiments on it we can read all sorts of research papers about it but in essence certainly for me at the level that I'm at and to be honest I think most likely at the level you are at as well, depending, of course, on who you are. But to me, the best way of understanding peat within whiskey is to do three things. The three golden steps. The first one, go to where the peat is. Go to the habitat walk around it, have a good day out, maybe more than a day, have a wander, get out into that countryside, breathe in that fresh air and touch it, feel it underneath your feet, hold it in your hands, see the wildlife that's there, get in touch with it at an elemental level. The second step, if you can manage this, not everybody can, is go into a house, a farmhouse, a cottage or wherever maybe even a pub sit in front preferably actually make it yourself but sit in front definitely a peat fire and just smell in that smoke coming from the peat feel the warmth let it warm you up from your day out wandering the peat box sit in front of it relax and then the third step the third golden step, perhaps the most important of the steps. Raise that glass of peated whiskey and caress it, look at it, study it, observe it, smell it. 
breathe it in and then slowly and gently put it to your lips and quietly taste it explore those flavors explore those scents feel the aftertaste developing enjoy that finish enjoy the warm glow it gives you do you know that is the way to understand peat in fact do those three things don't even bother remembering the rest of this podcast or anything else you're going to see and read and hear just those three steps that will give you the understanding of peat in whiskey the best way of getting that understanding I've just finished reading a book called A Ramble Round the Globe Revisited in the Footsteps of Tommy Dewar written by Malcolm Greenwood and published by Neil Wilson Publishing. It's 92 pages long with monochrome illustrations by Eric Fosside and some full colour and full page glossy adverts at the start and the end of the book. There's no index, there's no glossary and the book was actually published in 1999. Now Malcolm Greenwood was a sales manager for Glen Farkless Whiskey and as such was well used to international travel in the name of work. This travel led to two books, A Nip Around the World and Another Nip Around the World, neither of which I have read, but both sound interesting. The uh, travelling account of an international whiskey salesperson. Mm. The problem I have with books like these is that they can draw me in with the idea that they will be about whiskey, but then disappoint me when I find out that the whiskey aspect takes a back seat to the travel. This book, however, has a few things about it that compensates for this. Firstly, it is written in a light and easy style with large print and not many pages. This means that the reading is easy. And even if it isn't what my main interest is, the easiness means that it doesn't drag. Secondly, it follows the journey of Tommy Dewar and by default has a relationship with whiskey, even when not directly talked about. Now the process of this book is quite simple. Tommy Dewar spent a period of time, I think it's two or three years, travelling the world selling whiskey. Malcolm Greenwood spent a far shorter period using modern transport to trace his journey. The book is then written with alternating passages from Tommy Dewar's account and Malcolm Greenwood's account of their journeys. The advantage of this is that the changes in style and time reference lead to stimulating variety. On the negative side, I was left feeling that Malcolm could have given more direct relevance between the two commentaries. There were time when the journeys were only slightly related and some golden opportunities to literally follow the footsteps and comment on the changes in time were missed. An example of this, and it's only a silly example, but a constant one almost, is that of the issue of hotels. Malcolm tended to stay in Hilton hotels, that's okay, but it's a shame that there's no real mention of what has happened to the ones that Tommy stayed at. However, 
There are many positives in this book, such as the interesting expression of a level of political correctness that would not be deemed appropriate in today's society. An example of this being Tommy's account of being told that, and in his words, Johnny Chinaman, makes a good worker due to the fact that he cannot have any alcohol without red rings forming round his eyes, to the point that one can work out how many drinks he has had by counting the rings. Now, I don't want to be putting Tommy Dewar down for holding views like that, because I think when he said it, it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's that level of political correctness that it wouldn't tolerate it nowadays. Another positive is the short list of Dewarisms at the back of the book, little sayings that Tommy Dewar introduced into the world, along with an imaginary discussion between the two travellers. Now, I read this book as a second-hand purchase about 12 years after it was published, bringing up the question, has the book aged? And the simple answer is yes. However, I think that it is actually matured rather than aged. This book was written before the turn of the millennium, within a world that changes at a very fast rate. What this means is that if the book is read today, one's actually getting almost two slices of history for the price of one, which makes the fact that the book is cheaper as a second-hand book even better value. Now, was it worth me reading it? I think it was. I found it interesting, I found it entertaining. Not quite as much whiskey wisdom in there as I'd have liked, but as I said earlier, anything to do with Tommy Dewar is by default related to whiskey. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Morted Muse podcast. I've enjoyed making it as normal. And again, if anybody wants to contact me, the email address is jim at themaltedmuse.com. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.